Welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode we ask, what's so good about dialogue? Today I'm talking to Dr Frisby Sheffield, a university lecturer in classics and fellow of Downing College here at Cambridge. Her recent fellowship at CRASH saw her considering the transformative power of conversation, tracing a path from Socrates in ancient Greece to Hannah Arendt working in the aftermath of the Holocaust. She reminds us that how we talk and listen to each other and to our own selves really matters. And perhaps in this polarised world of Twitter pylons and cancel culture, that's something we need to relearn. It's a beautiful afternoon here in Cambridge and I'm right in the centre of town at Cambridge Marketplace to meet Dr Frisby Sheffield who's an Associate Professor of Classics to talk about the importance of talking. Frisby, how are you doing? Good, nice to see you Catherine. Thanks for coming along and we're in the marketplace because this was one of the favourite places for one of your favourite people. Tell me who? Socrates. Yes, so Socrates spent most of his time engaging his citizens in dialogue in the marketplace, or the ancient agora, as it was called, which was really at the heart and centre of daily life in ancient Athens. There were matters of public deliberation being discussed. You could hear intellectuals like Socrates talk and watch various performers like we can today. Frisbee, as we're walking through here, you know, this is a busy place. Why was it so important that all the talking and the interacting and the building of society happened here, out in the open? I think that's a really good question because I think it goes to the heart of what democracy means. So d democracy literally meant power, kratos, to the people, demos. So it was indicative of the democratic spirit that so many matters of public concern were deliberated and discussed openly and publicly in the marketplace. So anybody could come and listen to the most pressing issues of the day being discussed. It was open to all. Well, it's interesting that because unlike democratic deliberation, which was restricted to adult male citizens, Socrates's form of discussion and dialogue was accessible to everyone, man, woman, citizen, foreigner, slave, all of whom appear as characters in Plato's Socratic dialogues. So it was public, open, accessible to all. That sounds amazing. And, and was Socrates the first person that did say, let's bring conversation out into the Agora? Or was it something that had happened and then became more entrenched? I think it was already a space of public deliberation in Athens where political matters were discussed. But it was important that philosophy as he conceived it 
was located there. Because above all, philosophy for Socrates was a way of life. So he was inviting us to reflect on the commonly held values, justice, love, friendship, courage, in a communal space, showing how philosophy is connected to everyday concerns by being in this open public place at the heart of daily life. That's so fascinating and we've done a whole tour of the market as you've been telling me that. We're right back to where we began which is near the bread stall so let's go back to your office and you can tell me more about what Socrates thought about talking and then how that's evolved. Yeah let's do that. Well, Frisbee, we're sitting down now in your beautiful office in Downing College and straight away my eye has gone to your desk. You literally work with busts of Plato and Socrates sitting right with you, looking over your keyboard as you're working. Tell me about their story. So one of the things you'll notice from looking at the busts is that Plato is the bigger one. And um, in a sense, there seems some justice in that because without Plato's writings, without his attempts to capture the spirit of Socrates in dialogue form in his own writings, we would not really have the Socrates uh, that I know and love. So basically, Socrates was a philosopher who spent most of his time in the market square engaging his citizens in conversation about common concepts like justice, love, piety, courage, and so on. And he wrote nothing, which seems to reflect the fact that for him, philosophy was first and foremost a practice of dialogue. He says the unexamined life is not worth living. He doesn't say a life without a clear set of moral doctrines is not worth living. He rather says that a life without putting oneself and others into dialogue every day is not worth living. That's the greatest good. So talking is the key, talking and listening, not necessarily writing it down. And that's all very well. But if you want to be famous through the ages, you probably need someone writing it down. And that was Plato, who was his pupil. Am I right? Yes. Well, according to at least one ancient source, Plato was on track to become a playwright. Other people say because of his family connections, he was probably destined to go into politics. But one of our ancient sources tells us that he was a playwright and then heard Socrates talking in the marketplace and then went home, burnt all his plays and became a follower of Socrates and wrote these wonderful dialogues, which are not historical transcripts, they're dramatic works that try to capture the spirit of Socrates's conversations with his fellow Athenians. My goodness me. And you're right. Yes, on your desk, Plato looms much larger. And Socrates is not very handsome, is he? <laughs> no, he's not very handsome. But it's lovely because in many of Plato's dialogues, that fact is sort of turned on its head. Because Socrates did, in fact, have many associates and young men who were enraptured 
with him and talk about his beauty where they're well aware of the fact that he was very ugly on the outside, but apparently he was magnetic, very charismatic in his speech and in his character. And so his inner beauty shone through. I was very struck, Frisbee, when we were talking on the phone before this interview, you refer to Plato and Socrates as my guys. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that is... (laughs) Wonderful. I mean, they are so real to you. They're not just sitting on your desk. They're your guys. How did that happen? I was introduced to Plato as an undergraduate. It was part of a a general undergraduate classics degree. And I remember when I first read the portrayal of Socrates in Plato's Symposium, and it was like falling in love. I was completely enraptured by the presentation of this character and so struck by my reaction that I just wanted to spend as much time as I could with the Socrates character and the only way to do that was by reading as many of Plato's dialogues as I could and then I wanted to understand him to to understand why he had this huge impact at the time and the only way to do that is then to engage in the trip which is doing philosophy with Plato so that's how it started and here you are yes (laughs) and actually it's rather perfect that here you are now sitting in Cambridge because I believe you're First degree was at Bristol, is that right? Yes. So there you were as an undergraduate discovering Plato and the character of Socrates. But you've ended up here where a lot of the teaching that you do now is really based on a kind of Socratic model, unlike many other universities. So what benefit do you think that gives a Cambridge student? Yes, I think that is something really special about Cambridge that when you come here to do a classics degree, it's not all about gowns and Latin. You do have one-on-one discussions with a supervisor, which does in some sense very much capture what was at the heart of philosophy for Socrates, namely dialogue. And I think one of the things that's really valuable about that and which preserves the spirit of of philosophy for Socrates, is that he thought philosophy wasn't just about giving somebody a bit of information, transferring wisdom like water through cups, as he put it. It was about holding someone to account in conversation. So when a student comes into my office with, with an essay or some ideas about a text... And I have my ideas about a text because there is a reciprocity as well that's embodied there. We hold each other to account in discussion by asking, why do you think that? And students learn to give and receive reasons for a claim, to listen to a different point of view, to take that on board, to negotiate with a different perspective. And I think those are valuable skills, even if they don't go on to do classics, they're, they're valuable skills for any democratic citizen. And I mean, I'm just trying to imagine a sort of very, very new undergraduate week one at Cambridge being invited into your room and said, we're on an equal footing here, which is terrifying. Tell me what you think and why you think it. How long does it take them to warm up to you and get into this idea that the supervisory way of teaching is the way forward and that's how they're going to grow? Yes, you're right. It can be unnerving at the beginning. And I think people can feel as if they're being put on the spot. But that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important to embody those Socratic principles where you say to the student, we are in an equal position of co-investigator. We're both 
trying to understand some idea together. I may have more experience in reading these dialogues than you, but that doesn't mean that my views about these texts are the truth about them. It just means that these are my perhaps slightly more considered view because I've been studying them for longer. But I'm really interested to hear your view of these texts. And people do warm up to that process once they settle into it. And and I think it's very emboldening to, to feel that somebody really is interested in hearing your perspective on an issue. And so confidence grows throughout that process. So here we are discussing dialogue and teaching new students every year to lean into this idea of putting your views forward and having them heard and then debating them and standing your ground and respecting others as equals. But at the same time, starting two or three years ago across Cambridge, there's a university-wide discussion on freedom of speech. I mean, it has exploded across the whole university and has actually ended up on the pages of you know, national newspapers and beyond. And it all comes down to two words, whether we should respect differing views, which was the first freedom of speech policy put forward, which then, after much debate, got translated into a need to be tolerant of differing views. So respect and tolerance were the two words that seemed to cause the biggest debate and discussion across the university. So what did that feel like on a personal level? Well, I think it played out very well in the end, which was that the university adopted the amendment, namely that tolerance is sufficient and we should not be encouraged to respect all views, which may well be used to shut down certain sorts of discussion. And the vote went through with a very large majority of 87%. And I think we're definitely on a much better footing as a university as a result, and in a way that very much captures the spirit of Socrates, namely the spirit of robust and frank open discussion, where people are not worried about being shamed or silenced. But if we go back to Socrates for a minute, he was effectively himself cancelled, wasn't he? Yes, that's, that's right. I mean, the ultimate cancellation, death by hemlock. And, I mean, that's quite an interesting case to look at in light of the respect-tolerance discussion that we've just been having because the charges were not respecting the Athenian gods and corrupting the young. And clearly the Athenians did not tolerate that behaviour, those beliefs. So, yes, he, he suffered the ultimate cancellation. If I understand it correctly, his trial by Athens lasted less than a day then he was sent to prison and effectively told to poison himself to death by drinking hemlock. But he was offered the opportunity to escape and he didn't take it. Why was that? Well, Socrates thought that it would be unjust to break the law. He had to accept the consequences of the indictment, even though he, he himself 
thought the Athenians were were misguided, that he was doing them a service by serving, as he put it, as a gadfly to a sluggish horse, the sluggish horse being the Athenian citizens. So although he thought that the verdict was wrong, he thought that he hadn't persuaded the Athenians and therefore he should accept the consequences, which he did. Calling himself a gadfly is quite interesting because that's the, the, the person that buzzes around and stings people into awareness. But does that mean he was rather annoying company? I think that's a great image, the image of, of Socrates as a gadfly, which Plato puts forward in the Apology. Because I think it both captures how irritating Socrates must have been to citizens going about their daily business. Socrates would interrupt them and, and say, well, where are you going? Oh, you're going to prosecute your father for impiety. My goodness, tell me, you must know all about piety and impiety then if you're performing such a controversial action and then, then a big discussion would happen. So yes, I think many people did find Socrates annoying. But as you say, it also captures that sense of trying to arouse, to provoke people into thinking about what they're doing. Thinking and thoughtlessness is very key to the project that you brought to Crash, which takes us from ancient Greece to 20th century Israel and the infamous trial of Adolf Eichmann in 1961. He, of course, one of the real architects of the Holocaust. And the Jewish philosopher Hannah Arendt covered that trial and all hell broke loose. Can you tell me, first of all, what happened? Arendt covered the Eichmann trial for The New Yorker and then published a book, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And that caused a lot of controversy, some of which revolved around her use of the phrase, the banality of evil. And what she meant by that was that she could not see during the trial any evidence of evil motive or intent she rather thought that thoughtlessness was the defining characteristic of Eichmann. As she put it, he quite literally did not think about what he was doing. But Arendt herself provoked an enormous amount of backlash for taking that view. Talk me through some of that. Yes. I mean, one review ran with the headline, Self-Hating Jewess Writes Pro-Eichmann Book. And the banality of evil was in some articles at the heart of that controversy because they thought that it was as if she was trying to exonerate him and at the very least she seemed to agree with his claim that he didn't have evil motives. So that phrase was particularly controversial which is why she returns to it towards the end of her life. She writes this article called Thinking and Moral Considerations where she asks herself the question, with what right did I possess and use the concept, the banality of evil? And it's to answer that question that she returns again to Socrates and Plato. And how does that help her work out 
how she herself was cancelled and whether she was in the right or where she stands on that question now at the end of her career in the 70s. I think that paper is is her attempt to come to terms with what happened to her, which, yes, in some sense was a cancellation. And she was exiled from many people in the Jewish community and she had worked tirelessly on their behalf in the interwar years, herself being interned and put in prison. So perhaps throwing it back, as it were, to the ancient context gave Arendt a space to explore issues that were clearly very controversial when just looked at through the lens of the events of the early 60s and the Eichmann trial. It was clearly a painful episode in her life. I know that the project you brought to Crash is actually part of a book that you're currently uh, finishing called Socrates and the Ethics of Conversation. You refer in the introduction that I've read to Hannah Arendt as the hidden inspiration for this book. How does considering your ancient Greeks, your Socrates and Plato side by side with Hannah Arendt, how does that help you in what you're trying to do? Well, one of the things that drew me to Arendt is that she puts my people, my guys, as you referred to them earlier, and by that I mean not not just the Jewish people, but the, these these Greek figures at the heart of her project of rethinking politics after the Second World War. So Plato, Socrates, Aristotle all become central points of departure for her in thinking about why did the Holocaust happen? What has happened to politics? Why has it degenerated? Let's go back and look at the Greeks, because for her, the Greeks were an ideal model in many ways of political life. So she goes back to the Greeks, goes back to Socrates, and thinks about how did politics degenerate such that we ended up here? What did working on this material at Crash give you? Arendt herself was a really interdisciplinary thinker. It's one of the reasons why I think she's she's not integrated enough in British universities because we're all so specialised and work in different departments. And she thinks with the ancient Greek philosophers so much. So it was very important to be in a department where there are people from a number of different specialisms asking me questions that I would never expect because they were outside of my particular area, where sometimes you can feel as if you're playing a game of drafts, the board is already set, people have already mapped out a certain set of questions that people are working on. And there was none of that at Crash. So when you're presenting your work, you have to make it relevant to people in a variety of different fields who are going to hold you to account in, in, a, in a very different way. And I found that really exciting. One of my colleagues at Crash was working on the culture of debate now in Germany and beyond, why discussion has broken down, how we can improve the conditions of discussion. So it was particularly interesting to talk to her and to think through ways in which Socrates might be relevant, might be a player in that kind of debate. So if I understand correctly, 
Hannah Arendt was following on from Socrates and Plato by arguing that hard thinking can prevent us from doing wrong and good conversation, civilised, inquiring, thoughtful conversation can actually do good, not just to us, not just in terms of making us better people, but can actually do good in the world by preventing bad things happening. Is that right? The problem with Eichmann, according to Arendt, was that his banal evil was due to his thoughtlessness. So she flips the question round and says, well, could there be a connection between thinking and abstaining from wrongdoing? For her, thinking was conceived as a kind of internal dialogue. So that's an inspiration that she takes from Socrates and Plato, because Plato also held that thinking is internal dialogue. And then Arendt looks at, well, how does dialogue work? And how can that help when the chips are down, as she puts it? And I think there are two points there. On the one hand, dialogue with Socrates, she conceives as a kind of vigilant form of self-guardianship, that constant daily practice of scrutinizing oneself, holding oneself to account, can prevent acts of wrongdoing. And secondly, she thinks also that there is an ethics of thinking. And I think that that is an idea that she also gets from looking at Socratic dialogue and how that works. Because Socratic dialogue is quite a regulated practice. It's not just having a chat. So although Socrates doesn't ever regulate the content of what people say, he does regulate the form, that is, how they talk to one another. So, for example, um, participants have to be on an equal footing with one another. Um, they have to take turns and share in question and answer. They have to hear the other person's viewpoint without encroachment. They treat one another as friends who are engaged in a shared and cooperative truth-seeking endeavour. So if, if we look at how that works in a Socratic dialogue with another person, then we can see that there is an ethics built into a Socratic dialogue. And by that I mean that facing hostile others or facing difficulties in argument requires courage, giving each their share of the discussion and proceeding without encroachment of the other person's position is a way of showing a measure of justice. Making concessions when required to do so in discussion is a way of showing moderation. So there are numerous ways in which the virtues for Socrates are inscribed within the very activity of dialogue. And I think Arendt has, is seeing that and her great insight is that if we look at how external dialogue works, then similarly for internal dialogue, that equality, in other words, is built into the very grammar of thinking. And I think if that's her insight, then we can see how dialogue can not just prevent acts of wrongdoing by serving as a vigilant form of self-guardianship, but it may actually habituate us against wrongdoing by adhering to equality in the to and fro of internal dialogue. And therefore, Eichmann was thoughtless and therefore on a fast path to wrongdoing because he was simply unable to think in that way. He simply did not examine himself or his conscience or whatever you call it in that way. He just 
blindly followed orders and that was his defence. Yeah, so I think for Arendt, the fact that he blindly followed the law, his conscience never even came into operation. He didn't do any thinking for himself. She uses this phrase where he was simply unable to see anything from the other fellow's point of view. And that's built into the notion that thinking is a kind of internal dialogue, that you're negotiating with a different, robust opponent in your mind to try and examine yourself. But I think her work led me to a stronger thesis, which is that thinking can not only prevent acts of wrongdoing, but that if one takes the point that there is an ethics of dialogue, then one can see how practicing this value-laden activity every day can improve, even if it's resultless, as it so often was for Socrates. You mean they didn't come to an agreement, but they agreed to disagree? Yes, so I think at the end of a Socratic discussion, they haven't got a clear answer to what is the nature of piety, what is the nature of justice, friendship, courage, and so on. But they have clarified a number of issues in the process. But beyond that, what they have also done is fostered a certain kind of common endeavour between the parties involved in the dialogue. They've learned to understand each other better. They've learned to face up to difficulties together in argument. They've learned to embark on a common enterprise together. And those are our values, whether or not they reach a definition at the end. Is that the reason to the why now question for this book? Is that what takes you from ancient Greece to Israel of the 1960s to our peculiar moment of Twitter pylons now? Is is that why you so wanted to revisit that in the ethics of conversation? I think it is quite timely because it does feel that many of us are bemused at why dialogue is breaking down in so many ways that discussion has has seemed to be very toxic in many ways and it's often interesting to to look at a problem that's thorny in a modern context and take it back to the ancient context and i think it's particularly interesting in greek culture because free and frank speech was seen as central to ancient Greek democracy. It was something that many thinkers and philosophers were concerned about. What are the conditions of free and frank democratic discussion? And it's certainly a question that one sees in Plato's Socratic dialogues. And he was very concerned with how we talk to one another. Do we proceed fairly and moderately in discussion? Do we proceed with gentleness? That's another characteristic that comes up quite frequently. Do we proceed with humility in awareness of the limitations of our own understanding? And I think those are values that we can really learn from today. It seems like we've lost nearly all of those values. When, If you look at just an average day on social media, you'd struggle to see that actually working in practice, or you'd have to look quite hard. Assuming that not everybody is going to sit down and read Socrates, how can we get it back? 
Well, it's interesting to um, think about what Socrates might have thought about social media, Twitter and so on. I mean, I think that brings about uh, brings up an important point, namely that it was really important to Socrates that this was face to face. Because I think some of the insults and trolling that take place today on social media platforms would be much more difficult to throw at people if you actually sat down with them face to face. Frisbee, I feel like I must ask you what your relationship with social media is. I mean, it seems nearly every academic has a Twitter account now and we're getting their thoughts in real time. Is that you too? No, I, I've never been on social media. I don't have anything beyond WhatsApp because it seems to me it would be antithetical to everything I do. Which has to be in person. Which is face-to-face, interpersonal dialogue. Do you get any pressure about that from anybody? Do you, or, I mean, from either your children, your students, or everyone's like, come on, you've got to get on there because it's all happening on this great Agora online. No, I think Cambridge is a pretty tolerant place and I haven't, I haven't had any pressure from on high in my department to, to get onto social media. Do you feel you're missing anything or do you feel that suddenly frees up an, a ton of time that you can just get on with your writing? I think it probably does free up lots of time, so I'm not constantly scrolling. And I don't think I could cope with all the uh, trolling and the various remarks, so I'm probably better out of it. So given that we probably can't put the social media genie back in the bottle, how on earth do we get to a place where we imitate Socrates a little bit more? Well, I think how we might imitate Socrates more is by having more dialogue And not just more dialogue, more inclusive dialogue, more public dialogue, making dialogue a daily practice, a practice that we're taught at school as a kind of art, as a skill. I mean, many schools used to have debating clubs, so I think those are a good idea to bring back, although dialogue clubs might might be a better, better way to put them. And... Teaching philosophy in schools, yes, but not in the way that it's so often taught today as a part of religious education, where, in effect, it boils down to what did Plato think and what what did Aristotle think. But using Plato's dialogues as a way of modelling what discussions look like. And I think that might be a nice way to address some of the more controversial issues today to say, well, let's model that in a Socratic dialogue. You take this position, I'll be Socrates, and let's talk about one of the really controversial issues of the day in that form. And I think if we instill in our children a sense of the value of that practice, then that would at least be a start. What kind of school child were you, Frisbee? What were you like growing up? Were you an argumentative child, a questioning child? Did you grow up in a house where a lot was debated? My life changed quite significantly in the thinking respect when I discovered Socrates. I don't think I was much of a thinker uh, in my teenage years. I very much enjoyed my teenage years, but I don't think being thoughtful was a key characteristic at that point in my life. So it was really university that changed things for you? Yes. In fact, during my A-levels, it was discovering uh, Greek tragedy, actually, which had a central dialogical aspect at its core. The central agone in Greek tragedy is precisely where where there's a thorny issue at, at its core. So that was a calling for me. 
what would your family have said if you'd announced that early on? I'm going to be a Cambridge academic and I'm going to be a professional philosopher. Would that have gone down well? I'm sure it, they would have been incredibly supportive, but I think they would have found it very surprising. Since the only prizes I won at school were the prize for drama and the cheerfulness cup, I was not on a, a particularly academic or, or philosophical path. I think I was what you would call a late bloomer in that respect. In fact, one of my friends recently said that my life has turned out completely unexpectedly. I think cheerfulness is very important for an academic <laughs> life, don't you? <laughs> there are in fact lots of jokes in Plato's dialogues, so yes, and he conceives of philosophy, writing philosophy at least, as a kind of play. Do you still find your everyday life a source of joy though? I know an academic life is a pressured one, but do you still have that same, as you said, when you first read Plato and discovered the character of Socrates, it was like falling in love. Do you still feel that now? Yes, I feel it's a huge privilege to get to spend every day reading these incredibly beautiful texts and discussing them for my job. <laughs> I can't believe my luck. Dr Frisbee Sheffield, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you on Thoughtlines and to have this conversation together face to face. Thank you very much for agreeing to take part. Thank you. Lines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thank you.